You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Look, you don't have to be straight with me, but it doesn't lend itself to intimacy. And we're already intimate, aren't we? To solve a murder, he stepped into the dead man's shoes. Spencer have a first name? He called himself Bob. Officially, I don't exist. Here you go. He followed the trail to White Sands. This is about creating enemies when there aren't any. I don't ever get involved in these kinds of deals. Give a half million bucks to a man you don't even know? Where truth is the ultimate disguise. I've never met anyone like you. You're honest. Even when you're lying. You don't trust me. (laughs) Where's the money? Where deception breeds like a virus. Elizabeth Mastrantonio and Mickey Rourke. White Sands. The most dangerous place to be. But you're not bored anymore, are you? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. Okay, I guess he's not going to do it. I can be a Bob. Also back in the booth is Dr. Andrew Nettie. I'm C-fucking-I-A, Bobby. On this episode, we are looking at the 1992 film from director Roger Donaldson, White Sands. The film stars Willem Dafoe as Ray Dalzal. The, kept missing how they are pronouncing that. A small-town sheriff who tries to solve the murder of a man in his jurisdiction by assuming the dead man's identity and getting embroiled in a world of arms-dealing. We will be spoiling the film as we go along. You have been warned. So, Jedediah, when was the first time you saw White Sands, and what did you think? I saw it sometime in the uh, earlier mid-90s. I don't know if I saw a trailer or just a poster, but there was the image of Sam Jackson, black man in a dark suit uh, against this White Sands, uh, you know, running with a briefcase and the the helicopter – uh, circling around him, and and I just I I love that that image. So I didn't see it theatrically, but I, I I'm sure I rented it uh, when it was not too old on video, and and I enjoyed it. But I felt like I was I was maybe missing it, and so I, I've watched it a couple of times in the last few months of, and I've enjoyed it more. 
I mean, for all intents and purposes, I saw it for the first time recently. How about you, Andrew? When I was uh, writing my PhD a couple of years ago, my partner and I went through a phase of revisiting all, a whole lot of 1990s films. White Sands was a film I hadn't seen before, and it popped up. We, 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 were, we were sort of edging, uh, uh, tacking towards uh, the psychological thriller genre of, of 90s films, and I, I thought this might be one of those. It, 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 it's obviously not sort of one of those, or it's a sort of borderline one potentially. But, I mean, the cast, Rourke, my teen crush, Defoe, Mary Elizabeth, and I may as well get this out of the way first, the fact that I've always had trouble pronouncing Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonia name. She was a bit of a nick girl back in the 90s. It got me interested. And I rewatched it again, obviously, for this show a couple of times. Look, I think it's an interesting film. I think it's not a film that is without problems. It's got Emmett Walsh in it. So, I mean, and I think as, as, as Roger Ebert once said, you know, you've got the, the Stanton-Walsh rule that any film that has uh, Walsh or Harry Dean Stanton in it has to have some merit, and I definitely think that stands for this film. It's got some real moments of greatness, but I do think there are some issues with it, especially in the second half. Having watched it two or three times, I still find it a bit confused and fragmented in places. When I was approaching it for this episode, I, I found it more interesting in terms of where it stands in the career of director Roger Donaldson. You know, the man who essentially kickstarted the modern New Zealand film industry uh, with Sleeping Dogs and then went to Hollywood and has had a sort of really interesting Hollywood career with some real hits, certainly from my point of view, and some terrible films also. So, yeah, in interesting film, not without its problems. I'm looking forward to talking about it too. I think I bought this one used when I was working at Blockbuster, and that was my first time seeing it was on VHS. I kind of remember when it was out theatrically. 92 was, I was still probably working at the theater, movie theater, or had just started working at Blockbuster around that time. But yeah, I think I picked it up for a couple bucks, and the movie just really hit with me for whatever reason. I just really enjoyed this one. And I love the performance of Willem Dafoe. I thought he was terrific in it. This was around the time that he was in Light Sleeper, which I also really liked him in. And yeah, this cast just knocked me out. And this was right after Samuel L. Jackson. Of course, he had been in a ton of things before this. But I think a lot of people point to Jungle Fever, and they're like, oh, this Sam Jackson guy, he's going someplace. This was right after that. And you can hear a lot of those Jules Winfield intonations in some of his delivery. This was probably one of my first exposures to Samuel L. Jackson as being such a force of nature. What really sold it for me was this opening of the film with Defoe and M. Emmett Walsh. You know, it's that dialogue between Defoe and Walsh and in the first act of this movie, especially in this first scene when we have them together, this crime scene and this all this shit that Walsh is giving to Defoe about this new hat that he's wearing. It's probably some of my favorite parts of this movie, which is a little unfair since it's right here at the beginning, but it just it tickles me pink every time I watch it. Hey, Ray. Jesus, your wife catch you that hat? Something wrong with it? Nothing to piss and I won't cure. Maybe we ought to just form a circle right here now and do it. 
You know, I was reading uh, the script for uh, this episode. I mean, I'd, I'd seen the film before, but I had forgotten that that was Walsh delivering the lines I'm reading. And like, how I don't remember the the kind of the dialogue in the movie being this sort of outrageous and and you know really going broad with uh, some jokes and things like that. And then I watched the movie again right after reading the script and. And I'm not Walsh. He just makes it sound so natural. It's like he's playing this. I'm not meaning this as a slight, but it's like he's playing the same character uh, for decades. You know, like he he can make any line of dialogue sound absolutely natural. Like it's exactly what that guy would say. And, uh, you know, even though he's super evil in some movies and, and, you know, salt of the earth and others, he could be playing the same guy who just shows up in, in countless movies. Uh, and that guy is great. The years have gone by and our pop culture heroes of the 70s and 80s are, gee, they're passing quick and COVID's helped with that. I just hope someone pops around every now and again just to check on M.M. at Walsh and see that he's okay because he's been terrific in just about every single film I've ever seen him in. You know? Yeah, there was a moment probably about six, seven years ago where I was almost lined up for an interview with him. And I, I wish that that had uh, happened, but yeah, I, I, I hope for good long life for that guy because he is just so good. And yeah, everything he's in, I mean, I, we talked a long time ago on this show about straight time and just how fucking amazing he is in straight time. You're talking about what a bastard he could be. And he was such a great bastard in that movie. He plays the probation officer, doesn't he? Yeah. And he's just a complete prick unnecessarily so i mean but he you know i mean obviously he was great in uh was it that coen brothers film um blood simple you know he was just superb in that he's you know blade runner he's really really been terrific in so many films but can you think of a moment of him on screen in any movie where you said that doesn't seem natural i don't buy that line he takes anybody's lines. On paper, I was having a really hard time with some of the lines he's saying in this movie, trying to, like, man, this line sticks out, like, really hard, and uh, but he, he makes it go down real easy. Must have been at a salad bar. That's a sorrowful last act for a man. <laughs> um, that, that, that uh, was it, that autopsy scene is... It, it, yeah. Got this John Doe up your butt now, don't you? Drive us all crazy trying to figure it out. Ruin my Saturday afternoon in front of the TV. I agree. The film has a very strong opening, the way it introduces everything. And it does. I thought, I thought it did have a bit of a no country for old men sort of vibe to it. But uh, And then, of course, it moves into that terrific autopsy scene, which is also very strong. And, and Walsh really, really carries that. He even manages to shine in a what i consider a maybe a less than lackluster film like my best friend's wedding where he starts oh. belting out a song i was like what mm walsh can sing this guy but he's got that sing song quality to his voice which i love so much like you're saying like oh it must have been a salad by <laughs> i just love the way he delivers those lines probably the only context in which you really can talk about my best friend's wedding isn't it you know you're not going to be doing an episode on that soon. No? And I had forgotten how much Mimi Rogers is in this film because reading that script, she's everywhere. Molly is everywhere. 
and she's not in the movie very much to the point where I was thinking, oh, she's barely in there at all. And in fact, one point I was thinking, is she even in the movie is, or is she just on the phone? Like I could barely remember. She does have a couple brief scenes. And of course, Mimi Rogers is fantastic, but she's just a non-entity for the most part. More, more than anything, I think she's represented by the hat that Ray wears, the hat that uh, Walsh has given him such a hard time about because the hat's there at the beginning. Ray, the Willem Dafoe character, is talking about how he got this hat from his wife, and then the hat keeps coming back through the rest of the film, and that's kind of like the culmination towards the end is when he puts the hat back on. It's the signal like he's going back to his wife. And this little shit kid that he has that throws his fucking bike everywhere. I know, I know, I know. The first third of the film is very strong, and then I think there are some problems later on with it. As I've said, I, I do think it gets a bit confused. I certainly found it confusing, even watching it two or three times. Mastrantonia's character couldn't exactly figure out what she was. I mean, she's quite good, as she was in everything, but couldn't exactly figure out what she was doing. And there's that whole interesting subplot about her acting as a criminal broker and funneling funds to left-wing causes in Central America. Of course, you know, at the time that this film was made, you know, Iran-Contra had just happened and, and uh, you know, Washington was getting up to all kinds of shit fuckery in, the, in Latin America. Oh, Christ, I got political again. One star. This show used to be good. But that sort of was quite an interesting plot line and it just got completely sort of swallowed up in the in the movie and i think it's just a bit too much double cross cross double cross who are all these people it's i started to get a bit confusing in the in the sort of last third of the film in particular i can see that i'm just out there on my own on this one in this episode. oh yeah it's a real clear real clear <laughs> so you're actually saying you know it's, it's me well, i i do i do like that the uh that you can actually explain the plot very simply but you can't experience the movie terribly simply. You can one hunter hunting the next, who's hunting the next, who's hunting the next. And, uh, you know, the Willem Dafoe character, our protagonist is takes the place of the smallest fish in the pond. It's a bit muddled. Um, I watched uh, uh, not only Red Rock West from John Dahl about uh, uh, someone assuming an identity um, that's not his and getting into a, uh, trouble, but I also watched his other um, out west noir, Kill Me Again. And what struck me so much about those, they do have a relationship to this movie. Like they, there was something, I guess, kind of in the the air that I think they were all drawing on. Uh, they did have these kind of classic noir setups. The difference maybe is Dahl was directing his own scripts and he, uh, he knew exactly how to hit each beat so that you were intrigued and, uh, uh, drawn in. But somewhere between, uh, the script and the, um, the direction on this, this one, there, there are a few moments that feel on paper when you're describing what's happening to somebody that feel like these should be huge, oh shit moments. But they don't play that way always. Um, so, well, and then, yeah, at the end where it's just beat, 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 uh, you know, unrelenting realizations and things like that. But it goes back to that point, which is a key, the whole fulcrum 
around which this film is revolving, or which the plot line is revolving, is, is all this sort of um, dark dealing in Latin America. So it's it's arm selling, and it's it's it, that's that's kind of what originates the whole setup at the start of the film with the with the money, and then the, and then they get involved with arms dealing, and then we find out later that um, Mickey Rourke is is not just sort of a common or garden sort of criminal; he's a sort of combination lounge lizard psycho, but also CIA agent who's a sort of agent of chaos, fermenting it for the sake, you know, a right wing agent of chaos, just fermenting it for the sake of it. So that the Cold War, even though the Cold War is over or, or ending, you know, the military-industrial complex has still got something to do in, in, in Latin America. That's picking up on, a obviously, a thing that's going on in the late 80s and the early 90s, a lot of films touching on aspects of that to cite one that, bizarrely, I rewatched the other night. I remember that uh, James Robichaux adaption, Heaven's Prisoners, with Alec Baldwin. That's got a very strong Latin American subplot, but it was really swallowed in this film. I mean, it should be stronger and clearer, I felt, because it's good than it sort of was, and it just ends up being a sort of, uh, yeah, you know, and especially Mastranti and Tononi, as I say, start strong as I, I, I'm this sort of freewheeling Criminal, but my criminal dealings are basically for for justice to fund left wing groups um, in Latin America, and I love that scene where they have the party at her place, and there's that montage of all the people basically signing checks. Love that, thought it was great, and that just totally disappears from the la- last third or so of the film, which I, was sort of annoyed me a bit. Yeah, it'd been interesting if uh, if if they built the. Mickey Rook character, the Lennox character up, you know, like a Harry Lime, you know, in the third man, Orson Welles character, which is obviously a, another very strong noir trope of that, that agent of chaos, keeping the war going, tells himself he's doing, he's doing something for the greater good when he's, you know, really just uh, can't be reined in. I wonder if it had worked, if it had worked better, if uh, we were uh, expecting, you know, we were, there was a lot more buildup about who is Lennox and, you know, cause, uh, those, those two ladies, uh, Redhead and, uh, Goodman, man, what a strong entrance they have. And then they pretty much just disappear from the film. You know, it becomes another level till he gets to, uh, to Lennox, but, um, uh, man, they were super exciting. And then Lennox just kind of shows up. And I mean, Mickey Rourke is, is obviously exciting. Yeah. I would have, I would have maybe liked more build up to, and, and, mystery around who he was and, and uh chance to uh chew on that more i mean that's a that's a wonderful little touch of evil homage i thought those two those two women who burst into um dalzal's room and basically fleece him for the money one of the things that could have gone wrong that after i've watched it I don't know, probably a dozen times that um, I think that they end up handling well is the idea of the two FBI's. There's the FBI that is Sam Jackson's FBI, and then there's the FBI that is James Rebhorn's FBI, and it's a matter of who are we seeing when. And with Jackson, you've, and there's Miguel Sandoval as, uh, Ruiz, and there's the guy who's got the, the really awful haircut. I think he's, uh, Steve Tyler. It's like when you see those guys, then it's the Sam Jackson FBI, but then you've got the John Lafayette as Dermot and, um, James Redhorn, Rebhorn as, 
why am I blanking on his character's name? And those are the, the good FBI. That's the internal affairs who probably are going after Sam Jackson, but I don't even know if they know that they're going after Sam Jackson. Well, they know they're going after Spencer and FBI internal affairs going after the FBI, the FBI and Sam Jackson going after the CIA and the CIA going after the military, you know, rogue elements in the military. Everybody's chasing somebody bigger. Yeah, and he he comes in as the as the guy at the bottom of the uh, pecking order there. Just too much going on. Too much going on. I like that there is so much, and I like that you get those scenes of the redhead and Goodman coming in and just doing their thing and disappearing. I love when you get the scene of John Ryan and Fred Thompson showing up, not even credited in the film, and them being these longhorn uh, arms dealers <laughs> and, and uh, just, yeah, them and, and that weird moment of like John Ryan handing over the little uh, keychains with the uh, gypsum from white sands, you know, like, Oh yeah, here you go. Take this. And I'm like, what is there like a tracking device? And then finally I realized, no, they're just little cheap keepsakes that he's handing out. Like he's some magnanimous overlord, like, Oh yeah, here you go. And tell him the secret of white sands that it's actually gypsum. And I think that's kind of a nice metaphor that you call it white sands, but it's actually something else. You know, you call this guy Bob, but he's actually Ray. You call this guy this, but he's actually this other guy. So there's, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, even like Bob Spencer, Bob Spencer doesn't exist. Bob Spencer is just an alias that Artie was, for a while, and now Ray's going to be that alias. But those two arms dealers, they're great characters, and if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, we don't see them again. No, Do we no, we don't. No. So, it's full, so it's full of all these little, I agree, terrific little character roles and some really great plot points, but they're just not developed. It's, and then they just go, and then we're, we're on to the next thing. And so I'm still trying to understand what just happened there, and we've just, we're just moving on to the next thing. Other movies that do that but really succeed, like something like, uh, say, Big Trouble in Little China, where just every time, every single scene in the first, you know, half of the movie at least, there's some big dramatic reveal of, you know, someone repeats a line of dialogue like, oh, that's Lopan, or that's the White Tiger, or that's the, you know, like, these are very important things, supposedly, and we never, ever come back to them. But the, the movie, it's part of its genius is it just rolls along. You know, it just keeps giving you stimulus to keep you involved and remember. And you get to the end and none of it really connected or fun. But, but you can now, you know, it, it's fertile for lots of imagining, uh, you know, you, you can build a, a universe out of, out of all those clues. And I think that there's some real similar uh, potential in this. I mean, we've already talked about uh, Goodman and Redhead and how we'd like to see more of them. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd watch a show with uh, M.M. at Walsh uh, as a um, small town mortician. Small town yeah, mortician. Fantastic. Yes. Yes. Small town mortician. I'd watch a show with uh, the Lane character, the Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, where, you know, it's alluded that she she's turned on by dark, dangerous 
men and she just kind of seduces every one of them, you know, like uh, she slept with Lennox, she slept with O'Brien, she slept with Ray, you know, she, you know, as far as she knows, these guys are all real bastards. Man, I'd watch that show. It's just like every week she takes on somebody else and, and, you know, sucks up their, their dark energy and spins it into uh, like you said, justice in, in Central America or something like that. But that would be at Rodeo's, wouldn't it? She'd go, to a different, <laughs> she'd go to a different Rodeo each week and meet a new, dark, dangerous man. Be romantically involved, then maybe, I don't know, suck up his energy literally. Leave him a, just a withered cusk. Maybe the least interesting character is our is our main, main character. And I don't want to say least interesting, but there's nothing about him other than the fact that he just packs up everything and leaves his life to go do this. It's a terrible plan. He's a bad police officer. I mean, he's got some, some investigative instincts and, and things like that, but he takes the money with him. Why did he take the money with him in the first place? And he loses it immediately. And then he, in an effort to get it back, he, puts more on the line. I mean, he's just, I'm interested in what's driving him, but I do not know what it is. I, I wish I knew, oh, he's just kind of a, a hothead uh, thrill seeker like uh, Chance in To Live and Die in LA, or, or maybe he's just bored. That would be interesting, but I really don't know what it is about him. And, and Defoe is kind of, uh, he's not telling us what's going on. He's, he's interesting scene to scene, but I don't feel like I know who that guy is. Personally, I think that he's bored with stuff. I love the whole idea of that he's not the sheriff and he keeps correcting people that he's not the sheriff. You know, he's, he's just like the uh, uh, assistant deputy or whatever it is. And the sheriff comes by like once a week, maybe once a month and just checks in on things and then goes away. So he's disenfranchised. He has no power in his own city, just like has to keep reminding people, yeah, no, I'm not the sheriff. I'm just this dude. And so I feel like he's out there and looking for more adventure. I liked in the screenplay that there's so much more Molly and it's this idea of, and you kind of get it at one point, at one point that bratty little kid calls Willem Dafoe Ray. So you don't call your dad by his first name unless you're, you know, I don't know, some sort of like a trust fund kid or something, but you don't call your dad Ray. You maybe call your stepdad Ray. And that's what Willem Dafoe is to him. He, he is the stepdad to this kid. And you've got this little bit of a story of how Molly lost her first husband and she really wants to hold on to Ray and Ray wants to basically go on this adventure and then when he goes on this adventure she starts to get the the heebie-jeebies and it's just like he's gonna leave me and so that really throws more into this whole idea of him sleeping with or not sleeping with the lane character and you get this whole subplot of her basically tracking him down through this delmar blackwater character who is Interestingly, still there in the movie, and he's there at the beginning, and he makes a little joke about wanting the dead man's scalp, and then you see him again. He's actually the helicopter pilot that flies them to the uh, arms dealer meeting, and then there's an extra thing in the screenplay where Ray pulls him aside gives him Molly's information and says, please send my wife some flowers. And then she uses that to then, she's almost a better detective than Ray is because she manages to track down Delmar and have him drive her to Lane's house. 
<laughs> and there's a big confrontation there. Everything you just talked about was in the script, but not in, in the film. And I do think that the script, not only did it give more to Molly, but it gave more it gave more to Ray. The movie just does away with him being the stepdad. I think they just made it. He's the dad in, in the film. If I'm, uh, though, the, you might be right that they left a line in where the kid calls him Ray instead of dad. But um, in the script, at least, then you get the a better idea of who this guy is because oh, he's the guy who doesn't start anything. He steps into something somebody else already started, and he steps into this other guy's family. Uh, this other dead guy and just like takes over the family for a while. And then he gets bored with that. And he goes and steps into this other dead guy's life to see what that's like, you know, and that, and, in, and there was a, there was another bit in the script where Lane was talking about uh, some kind of weird animal fossil that had been found nearby of, of these. Uh, originally they thought it was two different animals that had been, fused by time or something but it turns out it was one guy you know it was one weird animal that they don't understand what it was and like well that's it's just reinforcing that's ray she's going to try to find delmar and goes in and it's a it's a guy who basically has like one of those like roadside sideshow kind of things and it sounds like he just it's like a fiji mermaid almost like he took two different animals and mushed them together and she's just like oh that's obviously two animals that they just put together and he's like what and and she has to then suddenly agree with him that oh yeah no obviously this is uh, a rare find that you have here sir in order to make it to the next level and be able to find delmar there was something kind of satisfying about all that imagery about these kind of half lives and and just smashing them together and and uh, you know, um, and and then the hat ties in, of course, by the end of the script, by the end of the film, he puts the, the hat on and somebody says that looks good on you for the first time. The beginning, it's a new hat and it's a new marriage and a new life. And he's it doesn't really, you know, it's not working. But uh, by the end, he's, he's made his decision and it made sense. But it wasn't in the film, the, the idea that, that he's the stepdad, that he just kind of took over somebody's life. And so it, it made a little more sense to me in the script. Oh, he's the guy who gets restless and just kind of goes and, and jumps, hijacks somebody else's adventure. And uh, I liked that. Um, I did like the script quite a bit. I like what you're saying about this idea of the two into one, because even when we're talking about like Goodman and the Redhead, uh, the two arm stealers, uh, even when it comes to the two guys that found the corpse at the beginning, Kleinman and Kazanov, we have these pairs that go throughout the film at very critical moments of the film. So I, I like what you're saying with that. And I liked the script, though I have to say that the movie for me just, it just zings along. And I can see, Andrew, to your point, where that might cause issues because they might have paired off too much because it is really just kind of hanging together because they just take any of that connective tissue and just rip it right away. And it, you're just left with the bones of this thing going through because it's just like you blink and you miss something. You're not going to catch what they're talking about. And there are little like throwaway lines, like even after he gets taken in by the FBI, pulled in out of that uh, hotel room where Goodman and the redhead had um, ripped off his clothes and taken the money, 
one of his lines to uh, Sam Jackson is, where's my hat? After I read the script, that's when I heard the line. I don't know if I had ever heard the line before I read the script. I was like, oh, he's still talking about his hat here. So this is interesting. But yeah, it's such just a little blink and you miss it or look away and you're not going to catch a lot of stuff. I started um, reading the script and I didn't finish it, but I, I wish I had because I want to see that film, not this film, because the script sounds, yeah, there was a lot more in there that didn't make it on the screen and hence, as you say, Mike, perhaps some of the confusion. I mean, that, that we haven't, there's another character too. We've got to throw in Noveen Moratini. I mean, who, who, who's just thrown in, not really developed, kind of gets killed, but we don't see that. And she's the lover of the guy that Willem Dafoe is impersonating, you know, the L.A. art dealer who, who was found dead at the beginning of the film. I do think she, her relationship to, uh, to Artie, uh, or Spencer identity guy was fleshed out just a tiny bit more in the script. And, and so she was understood in the film. She's pretty much nothing more but a red herring. She's what puts him in danger. She kind of knows the truth and she's one of the people that can blow his cover. I like oh. how, uh, he gets, she gets, uh, described all the time as, uh, like, uh, quirky looking, like, uh, kind of edgy or uh, kind of <laughs> what you said Jed about and it's unusual actually Defoe is in some respects the least formed and assertive of a lot of the characters in this film he takes this decision as you say just to go and because he wants to solve the crime he takes the decision to go and sort of chase up that take this guy's identity so he can find out what's happening but he's as you say not very good at it Kind of not even really clear a lot of the time why he's doing it, despite the fact his life's being threatened. And that reminded me of The Passenger, Antonioni's The Passenger, which, of course, is another of those assume someone else's identity films that uh, you talked about earlier in the week, along with Red Rock West. To your point about Noreen, she's one person that could blow the whistle on Ray. Even to Delmar Blackwater, he's another one that could act the wrong way and blow it. And the biggest one is Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, where I really like those range of emotions she goes through on her face when she gets introduced to Bob Spencer and he's not the Bob Spencer that she knows and that her face is turned away from Lennox from the Mickey Rourke character. And you get to see everything go across her face. I really like that. I like her performance in this quite a bit. And it's like I'm trying to think of other performances of hers that I've enjoyed as much, and I can't really think of any. I like I know that I always like her in things that I see her in, but she just really knocks it out of the park for me in this one. And I like how she plays into doing what Ray needs her to do, that whole scene of her uh, faking sex so that he can go out into the camper where the guy's listening and beat the guy <laughs> with a very obviously rubber branch that keeps bending every time that uh, he hits him with it. I'm just like, come on, that could be a little bit better of a prop, guys. But did they have sex and then fake having sex? I couldn't quite figure that out. So one minute they're in the shower, and it seemed to me they're about to have sex, and then she's faking sex. I think he whispers to her. She's making a move on him, and he's responding some, and then... He holds her face and he doesn't really kiss her. He, his mouth is by her ear. And I think that's him whispering. Because in the script, 
it's reversed. The script actually, that was one of my favorite scenes in the script because he's just fallen out of the car uh, after that chase scene on the highway. In the script, he's broken his arm and gone to the uh, the hospital and he's got a cast on his arm and he's just beat to hell and she's taking a shower and he walks in on her and he, he takes off his shirt, but his, he's like in his jeans and supposedly his boots or his shoes or whatever. He just walks into the shower and like sits down. He's like, we got to talk in here because the house is bugged. But they, they do start. There is a sex scene in the, uh, <laughs> in the script and it's him just beat to hell, half dressed and lying on the floor on the floor of the shower with the, his cast starting to dissolve in the water and just like everything he touches is leaving streaks of this cast. And, uh, and she's like tugging on his jeans real awkwardly and he's banging his head on the side. of it. I was like, Hannah, this is the most awkward sex scene I, that would have been in a, you know, in an A-list movie. I'm sure I'd kind of like to have seen that happen. Yeah, there's a little bit, like I said, of a disconnect between the beginning of that sex scene and then just we're turning it around for the audience as well as for that blonde guy in the in the van. In a van down by the river! Who just seems to be everywhere throughout this movie. And I was very glad when he gets the shit kicked out of him. Which leads to another great scene with Sam Jackson when... Ray breaks into his hotel room and throws this guy in there. And then Jackson gives this whole speech about how great of an FBI agent he is. And this whole thing of him not even having a bug stain on his record. I'm arresting you for the murder of Artie O'Brien. Oh, yeah, yeah. uh Uh-huh. And they're going to believe you. What's the picture they're going to be looking at here, Ray? Small town redneck cop who possibly stole money from the Bureau, telling wild-ass tales about a respected senior minority agent who hasn't so much as a bug stain on his record. I'm out of the loop, Ray. Artie's dead. Noreen's fingered you as the accomplice. She's dead. All you've got is a Polaroid, cowboy. Means nothing. There's that speech, and then there's the speech earlier in the film when we first meet Jackson, where he's got all the pictures, and he starts showing Ray the pictures. I don't know if it's just that I've seen him in so many Tarantino films, but just that whole pattern that he has feels very Tarantino-esque as far as... Do you like Snapchats, Ray? I love Snapchats. (laughs) Little frozen fragments of time, completely real. But unless you know what happened right before or right after a picture was taken, well, hell, you don't know much of shit, do you? Where's my hat? Artie O'Brien, a.k.a. Spencer. He's dead. See? No way you'd know that from looking at this photo. Yeah, this works very well, and he delivers it so nicely. And then later when Ray breaks into the hotel room again, and he's just like, oh, not again. Come on. (laughs) I really appreciate that Sam Jackson is a real bastard in this movie, but you have so much fun watching that and so much fun at the end watching him get fucked over. He's totally Jules Winfield in this film. Okay, good. I'm glad it's not just me. Oh no no! I, I couldn't I couldn't watch him without. And he sounds like Jules Winfield. His dialogue is like Jules Winfield. 
He's got that rising inflection in his voice. Uh, no, I just thought, God, I, I just thought totally from Pulp Fiction. His physicality, too. It's something that audiences now know, and we're familiar with the way he uses his eyes or his, uh, like you said, that rising quality in his, uh, um, both in volume but also in, in, in pitch, the, the way he uses his voice and his body. It's, it's so ubiquitous to the last 30 years of uh, filmmaking you know he's everywhere and we all know him but yeah even though he'd been in a bunch of stuff i wouldn't have known him for very minor roles i remember him in sea of love in a very minor role and and uh, i probably saw this before i saw goodfellas so uh, yeah i wouldn't have even known him known him from that but but now i i do think maybe I mean, it's a hell of a cast, a hell of a cast. And I do think that it's maybe ripe to be, you know, reconsidered now that people know, know who these, these performers are and, and, and want to find the projects they've done. I, I, you know, I don't think this is going to be the film that, that makes uh, somebody a fan of, of noir or crime, but I do think this is a film that crime and noir fans will really enjoy when they uh when they find it they're like oh my god how did i not know about this you know mickey rourke sam jackson willem dafoe desert noir i've got to see this and i think they'll come away from that having really enjoyed it the the work that the cast has has kept on doing for the most part i, I think will really sell this this film soon again not donaldson's best hollywood film though i would say by a by a long no, I think you and I agree on on what that one is. Cocktail. No, I mean, I, well, I would say No Way Out. Absolutely. I mean, I just I rewatched that preparation for this podcast again uh, with my 15 year old daughter. She loved it. I I just think that is a masterclass of a political thriller. The film that, by the sounds of the script, uh, White Sands could have been, but but wasn't. I mean, it's not that's not the only uh, Donaldson film I rewatched in preparation for this. I think you two, you also watched The Bounty, his first Hollywood outing, mm-hmm. which yep. I was I was really impressed with. I thought that was terrific. But No Way Out, in terms of a in terms of a razor sharp political thriller, I just think that was. I mean, that's Donaldson at his absolute height of his powers in some ways. I think the script for that movie is shit. The whole idea of why don't we blame this on Yuri? Yuri? Yeah, Yuri, this guy that we've been hearing about for all these years that we don't even know if he exists or not. Oh, wouldn't you know, Kevin Costner is Yuri. Oh, well, why did Kevin Costner do all those things that didn't make any sense if he actually was Yuri? I just think it's a, one of the worst movies I've seen. Oh, my God. Wow. Oh, I love it. I really love it. Really love it. But I do think it's interesting. You know, Roger Donaldson's not not someone I would think of as, as an auteur, you know, he's someone I would think of as a, as a craftsman, as, as a working professional who gets a good looking picture and assembles a good cast. And, you know, I mean, talk about like soundtrack elements. He's got Vangelis on the, uh, on the bounty. It was an amazing score that he puts together a good, a good product, you know, with what he's given. I don't think of him as someone who, you know, it originates with him and, and he nurses this thing so much. Though there are a couple, I do think that um, 
uh, world's fastest Indian um, is is something that he's been sitting with, you know, for 40 years trying to get that made. But looking at his body of work, it is thrillers. There's all of this confusion about identity running through No Way Out, uh, The Recruit, Seeking Justice, The November Man, White Sands, um, even the bank job. It's like, who's pulling the strings? What am I? It's all, all of these movies, uh, involve duplicitous, shadowy forces in government and they involve people committing crimes either because they think it's okay that the government is asking them to do crime and they find out later, oh, it wasn't the government. It was just some guy or they, it's just an excuse. They really want to be criminals and they get into uh, you know, government work because it's an excuse to, to commit crime and, and things like that. And I think it's interesting, um, interesting through line to those. I mean, the, uh, his other big glossy thriller that I, I do like is, uh, you know, the remake of the getaway. And it's not so much running through that one, but pretty much all the other big, uh, big thrillers. And I think even, um, even sleeping dogs has that in it where it just seems to be in his DNA as a filmmaker, this, um, this idea of people who don't know why they're doing what they're doing, but they're, you know, compelled to do, uh, dark or violent or dangerous dangerous things totally um sleeping dogs i mean that that sam neill character smith being getting mixed up in a sort of um as a revolutionary in a sort of dictatorial new zealand his first film and that's totally that and i also think smash palace brulo lawrence's character in smash palace x racing car driver car nut who loves his wrecking yard and his daughter but can't get away you know can't get on with his wife he's sort of more sophisticated European wife and knows he's kind of destroying the relationship and can't stop himself sort of doing it, can't stop the fact that he's pushing his wife away. I mean, that's very much right back in those early Donaldson films, both of which are terrific. I don't know um, I don't know what you think about Sleeping Dogs, Mike. I mean, I know I think you're a fan, Jed, but I, I think that is such an interesting film uh especially given how cheaply it was done the story of a group of right-wing people who ferment a coup in new zealand see that's no real life parallels there oh sorry i got political again um it works it's cheap but it works it's got excitement it's got it's got the necessary thrills into it and it's got smith as this sort of anti-hero character who gets dragged into being into fighting against the uh, against the sort of right wing dictatorship, even though he's got no interest in doing it, he's not political at all. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Mickey Rourke character because we've talked just briefly about him. I love how he can turn on a dime in this movie, and I think a lot of that comes from Rourke, and I think a lot of that comes from Pine screenplay. This whole thing of the first time that we meet Lennox, that he's at this. A hotel or the La Fonda, right? He's chatting up the woman behind the bar and he's listening to her story and he's obviously been listening to it for a while. And then when Defoe shows up, he immediately starts this scam where he 
tells this whole story. Hey, listen, I lied to you. I'm actually an art dealer, and this is one of my clients. And then Defoe, again, can, since he's already playing one character, he's going to play another character. So he starts to play this client character. And then how he buys the, the painting, they go outside, Defoe throws it in the garbage, and then Rourke starts to read him the riot act. What are you doing? Jesus Christ, Bob, what are you doing? What if she comes out here and sees that? Those are her dreams. You don't throw away somebody's dreams. Come on, let's go. We're on a schedule. we got to move. And won't even let Defoe go back for the painting. <laughs> I just, I love that moment so much because he just turns so quickly. And that kind of sets up his character. You never know what's going on behind those those beautiful eyes of Mickey Rourke's. And this is one of those performances and one of those roles for Rourke where you're just like, God damn, this was a handsome man. Whatever happened to this dude? Because he was just so fucking handsome in this movie that it was just incredible. And which makes it even better that he's just such a great bad guy because you want to like him. He is so charismatic. And even when he's given his whole I'm the CI fucking A Bobby speech, you're just like, Oh man, I really wanted to like you more. His career though was really on the slide even by by this though. We've gone from the height of Rumblefish, Angel Heart, the Pope of Greenwich, Greenwich Village in nineteen eighty four, Barfly in nineteen eighty seven, and then the two films I think he'd done previously to this Wild Orchid, sorry. And of course, I don't know, Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man in nineteen ninety one. That's the one he did directly before White Sands. He shone so brightly, and I mean, God, in the in the in the eighties, I just I just had this huge thing for Mickey Rourke. I thought he was terrific, but he didn't shine for very long in terms of his can his career. He kept making films, and I know not all of them are terrible, but gosh, he really went downhill quickly. And I do think there's a degree with Rourke. You could say a similar thing about him that you can say about. M. Emmett Walsh is that he essentially plays the same character in every single film. He plays the sort of loose, loungy lizard, slightly unhinged, dangerous people. I mean, God, I love love him. Love, love. I mean, just in his face, and and he can he can really act. But he's essentially the same. He's the same character in um in in this film as he is in some in some respects in Angel Heart and you know Pope of Greenwich Village and you know. He's got a lot of quirks that don't don't go a lot of places in the in the film. Um, they they build to like two things and then stop, and you never get that sort of crowning third one. Like his rules, he's got you know it's one of my rules: why drive when you can be driven? And my number one rule in life: don't let anyone intimidate you. And, but there's no I don't know if if, if it was left. It was in a scene that got left out or something, but he's got these weird sort of very 90s things that he says, you know, like, oh, hope you're practicing safe sex there here, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> it's the yeah. age of the microcomputer. And, you know, uh, yeah, it's just these fun things that, yeah, you do. You wonder, was he just kind of, was he riffing a lot? And um, was he just a, so much material there's so much personality you can kind of pick and choose scene to scene. But um, yeah, I, that, that scene with the waitress, with the artist, uh, with uh, Beth Grant, uh, amazing Beth Grant talking about being the same in every movie, but uh, always great. Yeah. What is that? Is he just throwing Bob off? Is he just, does he enjoy fucking with people? 
Is that the thing? And then, like you said, he he turns so quickly on on Defoe when he throws the thing away, and it doesn't seem like a. Does he really care about the waitress, or is he is he just really chewing Bob out uh, to keep him off his balance? I don't know. Because it feels like he's trying to make her dream come true. Because at the end of the day, she's elated. Unless she happens to find that painting in the garbage later on. But she's elated, hopefully for the rest of her life, thinking that she sold this painting. Which is so funny, because I've been to Santa Fe before, which I think is where this uh, place is supposed to be. And it is so fucking artsy-fartsy. It's just amazing. It's like all this just shit everywhere of just like... Street vendors, every place, just like, hey, I made this, I made this. It's just like, like the like an arts town on steroids. You brought up Mike where they met um, at the bar in the La Fonda Hotel, which was also the bar and hotel in Ride the Pink Horse. Oh, nice, the La Fonda Hotel. That's right. Uh, that That's was, right. That name was sticking in my mind. It was like, why do I know the name of this bar and this hotel? No. It's it's the other Santa Fe Noir uh, that uh, I covered with you a couple couple months back. I love a good neo-noir. Andrew, you're talking about Mickey Rourke's previous roles to this and looking back and seeing he was in the, the remake of Desperate Hours, the Chimino film in 90. He was in Johnny Handsome in 89. And then even what you guys were talking about, Roger Donaldson, where it's I know there are films in between, but it's almost a trilogy of No Way Out, White Sands, and The Getaway. And it's funny that two of those, the bookends of either one of those, were remakes of previous films. And White Sands is the only one that's based on an original property, though we'll talk about that property more in the, the second half of it. I love that period of mid to late 80s, I'd say even up till like... 98 with like Palmetto. There were so many good neo-noir films that were out there and not all of them were taking place in cities. It felt like they were really kind of exploring the space, like thinking about things like uh, After Dark My Sweet 1990. That's very much set in a desert town. Oh, there's another one from 1990, um, uh, Narrow Margin, where it's taking place on a train, if memory serves. And it's just like so many good noirs that were taking place not in the cities. They weren't beholden to LA, San Francisco, and New York anymore. They were really trying to look at that space out West or in other cities. Like, you know, you brought up no way out, how the whole thing takes place or most of it takes place in the Pentagon, which you wouldn't have necessarily seen before. Also, uh, Red Rock West. What what year was Red Rock West again? That was that was ninety uh, three, maybe. So, I mean, and that's ex- I think that's an excellent film, Red Rock West. Yeah, and and uh, Kill Me Again, which would have been eighty nine. I want to briefly talk about the end, though, because I like that at the end of this film, like we don't get the reunion between he and Molly, which I'm okay with because we that's kind of promised and we know that that's going to happen. I like this final scene that we have with Sam Jackson, with Mickey Rourke, and with Willem Dafoe, and that with both Jackson and Mickey Rourke, that Dafoe is basically saying back to them things that had already been said to him. This whole thing of him saying to Sam Jackson, he repeats back the whole thing of like, You could try to explain everything to your FBI friends. It's a long shot, but 
After all, you are a senior minority agent without even a bug stain on your record. Sets him up inside of this, what is it, like a bathroom or whatever this weird building is in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> Sets him up in there, gives him this gun or leaves it just out of reach, and, but he knows that he'll get the gun. And then when um, Mickey Rourke pulls up, he's just like, hey, you know, there's this whole thing of trust. And it's like the exact same thing that Rourke had said to him about trust. And that's what finally assuages him into going into this building where he ends up getting shot. And I like that at the end of the day, even though we have talked about how bad of a detective Defoe is in this and that he could have easily been caught so many times that he's using these people's words against them and that everything ends up working perfectly like clockwork with the way that you know he uses Jackson to get rid of Rourke and then Jackson gets set up with those that empty suitcase full of sand and that wonderful um <laughs> Jackson out in the desert screaming and laying his head down perfectly inside of that suitcase so you get that nicely framed shot the idea of of uh Sam Jackson being called Meeker by the way I want to say that that's a callback to Ralph Meeker but I could be wrong that's mm-hmm. reading a lot into the film. Yeah, I would say. But look, I, I want you to have that if you want it, you know. Uh, well, I think the ending is probably just him getting out of his car back home and the kid comes up to him and says, Hey, how are you? And then drops his car and drops his bike again. Fucking Let's stop kid. that bike. <laughs> Gravity. Uh, that kid wants to take that money and buy a new bike. He wanted that $100,000 so or $500,000 so he could buy a new bike. It's a strong ending. I think that scene with Samuel L. Jackson running through the desert and then, as you say, his hand, I think it's his hand and his head's resting on that suitcase full of sand, the white sand, is a good solid ending, especially coming as it does after sort of about half an hour, 40 40 minutes, where I was often getting a bit lost in terms of what was happening. Yeah, I think it's a triumph of imagery over logic. It is strong images there. Uh, I mean, even just having him handcuffed, one hand over his head in the you know in the bathroom, and you under like, even if you've not been following the movie very well, which probably, frankly, a lot of people who saw this film were in that place. Like, who is this again? What is it? What are they trying to do? What you can understand a dude with handcuffed, you know, with a gun just out of reach, and a you know a case of money and like a suitcase of money just, a, suit, a suitcase of money is all you need you know yeah a suitcase of money and a handcuffed dude and that's just great imagery and then running across the this you know this very dark figure running across the very white sands and and helicopters uh in pursuit i mean that's that's fantastic there's the whole thing too doesn't he give Sam Jackson the same suit that Artie was wearing or like the same type of suit that Artie was wearing when they found him in the film. You don't really get into that, but yes, he made a point of it in the script that uh, he's ripping out the tags so they can't be traced, you know, where this suit came from. And and speaking of, of Artie, that's the guy with the real, like if you wanted to do, if you wanted to tell this story as a noir, as a black despairing psychologically uh, disintegrating noir it's Artie's story you know it, it it's him being a greedy kind of sniveling 
bureaucrat who decides he's gonna you know s- sneak around on his wife with with Noreen and steal this money from uh, the evidence locker and set up an arms deal and then you know it, it, the last part of the movie is him everything's gone to hell and he's in that hotel room in that horrible motel room burning his clothes and you know eating junk food and uh losing his mind and and then blowing his brains out i mean that's that'd be a movie i'd watch that movie that sounds great that is quite a uh information dump when uh, when Sam Jackson's like, well, yeah, he was sleeping with uh with this with uh Noreen and with Lane and his wife Karen didn't know about it and I'm just like, Karen, who, who where's Karen coming from? <laughs> You're giving me a little bit too much here, but yeah, that the whole thing of like how he uh ended up given uh because i didn't think that Artie had committed suicide just from the way that he was holding the gun but that's jackson's story and he's sticking to it that he gave Artie this gun and had Artie pull the trigger uh on himself that he uh was had made him so despaired that he uh wanted to, to to off himself i'm like okay if that's the story you're going with all right but i still think that you put one in the back of his head All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with the writer of White Sands, Daniel Pine, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. I know you know who I'm talking about. It's that guy. Yeah, yeah, with the eyebrows, he's, right? He's in a yeah, million Yeah, the bushy movies. eyebrows. Sometimes they're bushy, but he also sometimes has a mustache. Yeah, it was, that, but, but he shaved. Well, he, no, he didn't. You know who I'm talking about. You see, you've seen the, him in a million movies. We just saw him in that one thing. Yeah, he looks like a pug. <laughs> Listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers. You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? Then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider. Now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. I would really like to know how you decided to get into writing, in particular um, screenwriting. In college, I started thinking that I wanted to be a fiction writer. I studied under a couple of really good novelists who didn't discourage me. I wasn't really that great at it. I was very tentative in my approach to it. I wrote a lot of short stories and sent them out back when you could do that and got rejection notices from everybody. I was working as a journalist in Menlo Park, California, on a weekly newspaper as the sports editor. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to do that forever. I wasn't a great reporter. But I loved the writing part of reporting. So I'd always been a huge movie fan and television fan. And I knew that it was possible to or it seemed like it was possible to freelance, to come down to Hollywood and freelance and write scripts. And given what they paid for scripts, you could write one or two television episodes and support yourself. Or at least that was my theory. So out of the blue, I applied to film school to UCLA film school. And as a backup, I applied to business school. I didn't get into business school and I did get into film school. 
So I came down here to learn how to do film. I didn't have any connections. I didn't really know that much about it. I'd, I'd seen some screenplays, but I didn't know really anything. I went to UCLA. I did okay. I learned a lot. I learned great things from some great people and then got out and kicked around for a couple of years, intended to write film scripts. I sort of fell in love with film because that was, I mean, I'm, I'm an old guy and that was the, that was the era of Coppola and Antonioni. And, you know, we were steeped in those films of the seventies where we thought that the film industry had changed forever and it was going to be art. But I got a job in television instead <laughs> and did that for a while. And then White Sands was actually the first screenplay that I wrote that, that, that original that I wrote that got attention. I had done a, a rewrite on the hard way under a TV deal that I had at Universal. I just happened to work with the producer of the movie and I was cheap and they hired me and, and I sort of turned it around. And while that project took a long time to get made, meanwhile, I started writing some other things. There was a strike in 1988. I wrote White Sands. I wrote, got it optioned that fall, but got a lot of complaints that it read like a novel. So I wrote a second script at the end of that year called Pacific Heights. And that was the first movie I had that got made. I remember when that came out, and I remember that being pretty darn big. I was working in a movie theater at the time, and I remember people really latching on to that. I don't know if it translated into box office, but I definitely remember a lot of good buzz around that film. It did, it did okay, but it didn't do the numbers, the blockbuster numbers that they wanted. Who knows why? But it, it was a good movie, and, and it was an unbelievable experience because I got to work with John Schlesinger, who was one of my heroes. I got to work with Michael Keaton, and Melanie Griffith, and Matthew Modine, all of whom were my age. It was really fun. I'm curious about The Hard Way. I just rewatched that one last week, and I forgot how much I enjoyed that film. I'm curious, what state was it in when you got to it, and what changes did you make? I can't exactly remember. It was it was sort of dead at, at Universal. It was the the basic plot was there. Lem Dobbs had done a great job of kind of getting it to a point. And I can't remember I what I actually did to it, but I think Lem just ran out of gas and I came into it very fresh. Oh, I know what I did. I was I was really interested in in the I because I'd worked in television, I was interested in this gap between real cops and TV cops or movie cops, you know, lethal weapon cops. And I thought the idea of doing Sullivan's Travels, but with an actor who tries to be a cop and, and realizes that all of these tropes that he knows are not true was kind of fun. So that, that was kind of where I came into it was on a character basis of these two guys working together of the actor coming in with a lot of preconceptions about what it what it means to be a cop and then creating a cop character who was nothing like what you would expect him to be. Unfortunately, there was about a two year gap between when I finished and when the movie got made. And in those two years, John Badham got a little bit bored with what we had done. And he was also he made the kind of movies that I was making fun of. He brought in another couple writers to do a light 
polish, so-called what they call it, a dialogue polish or a trailer polish, meaning not that it goes in a trailer. I mean, meaning, meaning that it's for the trailer. It's a lot of cool lines for the trailer. But basically what they did was they took the James Woods character and turned him into a more conventional cop. And I had written a much different guy, a quiet kind of more brooding, studious, never swears in public, a very kind of contained, measured man. And the Michael Fox character, of course, thought he should be like all these flamboyant characters that he'd seen, that he should be Mel Gibson. And when he discovers who this guy is, it really changes him. And they they developed this relationship because of that. They kept that part, but um, they made a couple of big changes that I wasn't ex- completely happy with. But what can you do? But it's still, you know, lots of a lot of it still holds up. So tell me, how did White Sands end up being done? I like to think the script was great. It got a lot of interest. It got optioned. And then I think by Warner Brothers, by Don Steele at Warner Brothers. And then it went into turnaround. And because of Pacific Heights, Morgan Creek wanted to make another, was interested in making another movie with me and Scott Rudin and Bill Sackheim, the two producers. So they, they bought it. They optioned it and bought it after Pacific Heights came out. And then we, we, tried to get a director attached. We had a few different directors before Roger Donaldson latched onto it. The motor of a guy who tries to solve a murder by becoming the murder victim was something that really appealed to everybody. And there was also a subplot that got, that got taken out. Also the idea of this, this small town sheriff who is a little bit bored with his life. He's a little bit, he has a wanderlust and, he gets this big case and he doesn't want to let it go. So he pursues it. And in pursuing the case, he begins to see a, he begins to live a life that he couldn't have lived otherwise. And he has to choose in the end between these two lives. It's a theme that I I've done more than once, but it was the first time I really explored it. This idea of a guy whose life could go two different ways. He's at a crossroads and depending upon how he chooses, he, he either gets the new life and he loses the wife and stepson that he had in the small town, or he goes back to them and foregoes having this potentially more exciting, more thrilling, professionally more rewarding existence. Yeah, I read an early draft of it last night, and I think it was from March of 91. And there was the whole subplot of basically Molly looking for him and going after him and even a meeting with Lane. And I found that so interesting. And I also found it very interesting that the, the Tucker character, the Native American character, actually had a whole lot more to do. As far as I know, they shot that whole sequence. And then at some point in the editing, the movie was long and Roger Donaldson was trying to streamline it. And he decided to trim it out. Mimi Rogers was just, they just got rid of her. And I was really disappointed. I always wanted, I never got to see the version with her in it, but I always felt, I, I felt bad about it. I was told that it didn't quite work. The chemistry between Mimi Rogers and Willem Dafoe wasn't right or something. They, somehow they didn't like it. Or, you know, these things happen in movies where your best laid plans are derailed by a director who doesn't understand it or, circumstances beyond anyone's control where 
a plot goes off the rails or you can't shoot it or it, or the footage is bad or the actor has a bad day and you just have to adjust to it. They like to say there's the movie that you write, there's the movie that you shoot, and then there's the movie that you make. And they're three different things. Yeah, I was very surprised that Mimi Rogers, Fred Thompson, and John Ryan aren't even listed in the credits. Yeah, I know. I know. I think Mimi, I, I ran into Mimi because I was doing the Amazon show Bosch, and we talked about it a little bit. I think she was disappointed, but she moved on. It was funny to see Fred Thompson as a uh, corrupt uh, army person after he's been usually so upstanding in most of the films that he's in. I know. I know. He was great. I love the story. It's, I still feel like it's one of my best scripts. I keep trying to think of other films where someone assumes somebody else's identity that isn't, you know, close to how they look or whatever. And uh, it's just such a fascinating trope. I really uh, appreciate Defoe's performance and, and just the way that he just throws himself into this. It's like, okay, yeah, I'll be, I'll be, uh, uh, Bob. So let me go out here. I'll be Bob for, uh, for a while. He was great. He was a little nervous because he's, he's not really a leading man. Not quite what you expect, but he was better in some ways because of that. Cause he really played a character as opposed to just being. Yeah. I think I saw white sands and light sleeper within just a few months of each other. And I was just, so taken by Defoe, who I think at that point in his career wasn't such a known quantity. And he was just, I mean, of course I had seen him in wild at heart at that point, but he just blew me away with those performances. He's a great actor. The film that, that inspired me that, that kind of echoes through it, that does have that same idea of someone taking someone's identity is the passenger Antonioni film, which I saw in film school and loved and this was it's not a variation on it but i i became intrigued with this idea of of someone taking someone taking on someone else's identity in that case it was to disappear himself but um and for a lot of other complicated reasons but i always i always loved that journey that he took and he he made the choice to go all in and and basically was committing it was a long suicide it always kind of reminded me of the flintcraft story yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That was also from, yeah, from the Maltese Falcon, where he goes looking for this guy, and the guy, he finds out that the, the guy was walking down the street, and an I-beam landed next to him and could have killed him. And it so shocks him that he decides to abandon his life, and he goes across the country and winds up in Seattle, and then just recreates his same life again, with the wife and the house in the suburbs. And Yeah, that's a that's a nice story. I can't think of a movie at that point with a better cast. Just everybody is somebody or would be somebody. This again was one of the first times that I ever saw Samuel L. Jackson. And God, now I can't turn on the TV without seeing Samuel L. Jackson, but he was so good in this. Yeah, he was, he was not known. And Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio was great. And then she went on to do the abyss and. Willem was great. Mickey Rourke was wild. Maybe his last really good performance. I can't think of what he did later because he'd already done Angel Heart. He'd already done Body Heat. He'd done his his run, and then he kind of went off the rails for a while. 
but he had this whole thing he, with the hair and his teeth, and he had he had this whole character in his head that he created. I love his whole the not smoking thing that you put in there, and uh, him constantly chewing on the nicotine gum. Yeah, I had a friend, I had a good friend um, who I wrote with a lot, John Mankwitz, and he was going through that at the time. It's a thing I like to do. I like to ground these kinds of stories in real life with details that you don't expect. You know, in a in a traditional thriller, they tend to be heightened. They tend to not have non sequiturs in them. They tend to not have the intrusion of normal life. And I just love this idea that normal life is always intruding. It actually helps the tension. It, it definitely helps to round the characters to give them more complexity. It was always a little bit of a struggle for me because I wanted to, I had such high ambitions in everything that I write. And I also, I like to write. I like to write prose. And learning to write screenplays helped me with my prose, but it also taught me a more visual way of storytelling where you, you know, in a novel, you can get inside somebody's head and help the reader to understand what's going on in a, in a movie. You have to find images, you have to find actions and reactions and visuals that, that suggest what's going on inside their head. And then you hope that the audience brings something to it. And I, I like that, but they're two very different skill sets. Well, where did the idea of setting this in the Southwest and especially the idea of White Sands itself come from? I grew up in Colorado, so I had actually traveled. I'd been to White Sands a couple of times when I was little. And I think it was in the spring of 87, my wife and I took a trip across the Southwest sort of just for fun because she'd never been. She's from California, Northern California. And we drove through Arizona um, and into New Mexico. My father, who was a painter and sculptor, had a little gallery that exhibited his work in Santa Fe. So that was part of our kind of our destination was just to check it out. But also I wanted to see Santa Fe because I hadn't seen it for a long time. And I, I remember really liking it. It reminded me a lot of growing up in, in Denver, but it's smaller, it's higher altitude, it's got much more of a multicultural feel. So we traveled through Santa Fe, and then and then because we were going to go down and loop back around to I-10, I remembered White Sands, drove, drove down to White Sands, and stayed in Alamogordo, and went out onto the to the sand dunes. I remember going as a kid with a family that we knew in Las Cruces, and we would surf down the, the sand dunes. And I just remembered how surreal it was. And it was basically their beach without any water. But I wanted to see it again. And so I, we did all that, and we started driving back through New Mexico. And that was when the beginning, the first 15 pages of the story started to come to me as I was driving back to L.A., you get a lot of good ideas when you drive when you drive long distances in the middle of nowhere. And I came up with an image of a body in the middle of nowhere in a suit and the idea of a cop coming on it and not being able to figure out what was going on. So so that part of it, I got it up to about the point where he gets the he he makes the decision to call the number. 
And then I put it away because I didn't know where it went or what the plot was, what was going on, what the, where the money came from. And I had other things to do. I was working. So I circled back to it later and it all kind of felt together. I wanted to do, I also really wanted to do a modern, something I knew and felt. And I wanted to do a modern Western. I wanted to do a contemporary Western thriller. What one years called a desert noir. Because I love the idea of doing noir in the bright sun, you know that. And now, now we do it a lot. I mean, Breaking Bad was was entirely that. But at the time, noir was generally urban. It was nights. It was shadows. There weren't as many of these kinds of of stories told. So I like that about it. I like the I I did like the idea of of a strong woman trying to find this guy who she thinks is like, you know, her Molly going after her husband trying to, she wants to get him back. She, she's more, she's, she's either uh, more paranoid or more worldly than he is. And, and she gets worried about him earlier than he does. She sees the folly in what he's doing and worries that she'll lose him. And it, what that also did was provided this nice counterpoint for me to his quest because her fear is that she'll lose him. But what she doesn't realize is there's never a chance she's going to lose him. He's, he's not going to make that decision. It's not, he just wants the one time he wants to do this. There's a moment where, where the conceit of the story makes you think because Lane has fallen in love with him that he might leave with her. But if you, if you track it through, you realize he's not that guy that he wouldn't be the guy who who went on this journey. If he was the guy who was going to leave his wife. No, it was really fun. It was it was also fun because it was, there were so many visual images of things that I was able to put into it. The rodeo, which is something that I grew up with, um, those kinds of rodeos, those county fair events, the um, the stuff at the at the house in Taos, at Lane's house, um, the the feds kind of wandering around in trucks in the middle of nowhere. The shooting range, the whole whites part of it and the, and the military, the contrasts in the Southwest and especially in New Mexico of culture and of commerce and of race and, and how they resolve that has always and remains interesting to me. I know you worked a little bit on the firm. Can you tell me about that? That happened as we were shooting white sands. Scott Rudin was had, had who was the produce one of the producers of White Sands had developed the firm and again it was it kind of had stalled out. He asked me to look at it and then I was hired to kind of put it back on track. David Rabe, the playwright, had written the first draft and it was really wild. It was really kind of crazy, beautiful, and and theatrical, but not really what the book was. So I went back to the book, which, by the way, I didn't like all that much. I felt tricked by it, but I liked the character. I liked the setup. I think Grisham is brilliant at at setting up these these impossible situations. And we went through and, and I fixed it. And then my draft nearly got made in the spring of, I don't know when the movie came out, but I can't remember who was going to direct it, but 
It was very close. And then Tom Cruise signed on to it. Tom Cruise booted the director off and Sidney Pollack was hired. And then I worked with Sidney Pollack for about six weeks because he read my draft and he read Rabe's draft and he decided he didn't like either of them because his process is his process. He, he likes to break, break stories down and build them back up again. And his, his usual collaborator, David Rayfield was having eye surgery. So he was unavailable. So I had the glorious honor to work with Sidney Pollack for about six weeks until I had to go do something else. And he started to, he tore the, he tore the story down and started to build it back up and wanted me to stay. And I couldn't because I had made a commitment on something else, which haunts me to this day. But I feel like I cracked the middle of it. I got it made. The final product is, is pretty much all Sydney and it's, and I really like it. I don't know about you, but I thought he did a great job. To me, it is the best Grissom adaptation and so much better than the book. I mean, again, no offense to John Grissom, but the book is the book and the movie is something really different and it just, it hums and it really moves. And I, again, so many great characters. I mean, the David Stratham character, the Holly Hunter character, Gary Busey, everybody is so important to that film. Well, and Sidney solved the ending. He did a, he did a better ending, I think, than, than Grisham's ending because what's his name? Um, the, who is Tom Cruise's character? What's his name? Mitch. Because in the, book mitch kind of gets a hold of some materials and he kind of just achieves a stalemate or, or achieves a kind of pyrrhic victory but he has to quit the law and go off and do something else and the genius of this idea that he goes to the mobsters and says i'm your lawyer <laughs> was was great and he just kind of he used it, it was great because it was a solution inside of the character which which was one of the my complaints about the book was it just seemed sometimes like the character was doing things that I didn't I didn't think he would do that I didn't think that kind of guy would do I didn't believe it didn't hold together for me and I thought that in the movie they solved that and it it felt of a piece I think Rayfield wound up working on it and so did Robert Town who lived next door to Sidney Pollack I also have to say that. I love The Sum of All Fears. That's another one that I don't think gets nearly enough praise. And, I mean, I enjoyed Alec Baldwin as the Jack Ryan character, but I really liked what you did with The Sum of All Fears, and I thought Ben Affleck did a fantastic job. But even more than him, the Lee Schreiber character was just wonderful. Yeah, he jumped. That was where he – he that made his career, I think. Yeah, he was great. That was fun. That was another fun project. Again, a rewrite where I was brought in to fix something. Originally, they'd written the movie for Harrison Ford. And I can't remember what fell out, but but Harrison Ford finally fell out of it. And then Philip Noyce was kind of unenthusiastically attached. And Paramount came up with this idea of doing young Mitch Ryan or young Jack Ryan. And I got hired to make that change. And I have to say that politically, I'm not anywhere near Tom Clancy. So I had a lot of trouble with the book. Plus, his books are really, really dense and long, and you have to kind of pick and choose. So 
I didn't even write the script, but I had an outline. I'd done an outline and kind of broken it. And then Phil Robinson came on and we were, we were of like minds in how to try to adapt it. It happened so quickly. This was say, I got hired at the end of summer. Phil came on in September and we were shooting by the end of November. So it happened so quickly that that's, and that's incredibly rare when that happens. But it just fell together. It, it, it worked really well because once we figured out how to do young Jack Ryan and how to make him winning. And then how to, we both had seen some of Ben Affleck and we decided that he was best when he was, when he was kind of rumpled and on his heels. And then the combination with Morgan Freeman, then you get Morgan Freeman and put him in, in the role opposite him and all hell breaks loose. But yeah, Liev and Liev came on and just nailed that role. Which, which is a spinoff. There's a bunch of books about that character. I forget what they are, but Clancy had written a bunch of things. Clancy apparently didn't like the film until his wife saw it at the White House and told him to shut up. I think it's still the most successful Jack Ryan film. I think it's, it was the biggest box office Jack Ryan film. Phil did a really good job. Neither one of us wanted to pursue it again there was a there was a brief window when they were thinking of doing another one phil was the perfect director for it he's so facile and he'd never done anything like it and he just stepped up and it was great it's so visual it it really it, it feels big well and i was so surprised that you went there that that the movie goes there at the end that the dirty bomb actually goes off now a lot of people have said that i mean it's in the book that was always important to us, was to have it go off. Can you tell me a little bit about Where's Marlowe? I was just talking last night about how much I miss Miguel Ferrer. That's one you should do a whole review on. Yeah, that's my favorite movie, that I favorite project I've ever done. It was a television pilot that John Mankiewicz and I came up with for ABC. We, we wanted to do way before anyone else, way before The Office, way before anything we had this wild idea of shooting a mock documentary about two documentarians doing a detective show. And we thought we could really deconstruct the private eye show for television by having these guys with their camera and only seeing what they see. So they don't always get to go into the place. You know, they have to stand outside and wait for him to come back out and tell them what happened. And we had this whole pitch. ABC bought it for some strange and lucky reason. And then when we started talking about who could direct it, I threw my name in and ABC bought that too, because I was so clear on, I seemed so clear on what the visual style would be and how to shoot it. So I directed it. And <laughs> the first day I got on the set, I realized I didn't know anything. I wasn't even sure what I was going to do was going to work, but I made some, I, I had some specific rules. I had a really great, cinematographer who had done some documentary work. I have a really good friend who's a documentarian and I wanted to shoot it like a documentary, not like a fake documentary. I wanted the camera to actually tell part of the story, the, the way the camera works. And if you watch it carefully, Wilt and AJ have slightly different ways of shooting. They are interested in different things. So a lot of the more emotional stuff in the film is stuff that Wilt has shot and the the more dogmatic and and 
informational stuff is and funny stuff is the stuff that AJ shoots. And then we got Miguel to do it, which was amazing. And we did an open casting call and found John Livingston and then Dante Bizet, who we now know is most deaf. But he had a burgeoning music career. The irony of Dante was he was in the hard way as a little kid. So we, when we got Dante, he was a genius at improv and at, at kind of that mumblecore, the beginning of mumblecore. And that was sort of the, the shaggy dog way that I wanted the acting to happen. I didn't want it to be formal. I wanted it to be, to feel like they were making it up as they went along. And when John and I wrote it, we purposefully wrote scenes in such a way that we wrote them the way we thought we might catch pieces of scenes that were bigger that we were just getting pieces of. Then I shot it all in masters. Every scene is shot from beginning to end. I don't do any pickups. I don't do coverage. We have the camera shoot sometimes two different sizes. And occasionally the camera coverage would change. In They would cover it one way in the scene and then they'd do it a different way. The camera would move in a different way. So when we sat down to edit it, the first assembly had like 200 cuts in it or 150 cuts in it because they were just masters. And then we started figuring out, oh, we could cut inside of the scenes to pretend that there was even other dialogue that we'd cut out. And the editor started doing that. He got very good at finding interesting places to help impact the cutting. And you see it in the office. You see it in in a lot of modern films where you'll cut from the wide to the to the tight. And they do it in documentaries, too. But you cut from the wide to the tight on a on a line in order to help to emphasize it. So anyway, we shot a pilot. ABC was very excited about it. We went to New York for upfronts. We thought it was on the schedule, which was silly of us, but we all went, Miguel went and they finally decided not to do it, not to go forward with it. But a year and a half later, universal came back to me or paramount came back to me and said, if you shoot another 30 minutes of film. If you think you can expand it, we can make a feature and we can make money on it because given their output deals and given how little the original pilot cost, it would be in the black. As long as I stayed on budget, it would be in the black from day one. So that's what we did. We, John and I sat down and we figured out how to expand what we had and created a little bit more of a movie. And then I went back out with all the same actors. We rebuilt the sets and we shot another probably 45 minutes of film and then blended it in to the existing film. And then nobody saw it. It kind of died. It got shuffled over to um, one of Paramount's indie divisions. And I don't think they liked it very much and they didn't know what to do with it or how to, how to market it. Plus it was already in the black. So they didn't really have any pressure to make any money. So they released it for a week just so that it could get credit as a, as a feature. And then they, then they put it on VHS and, and DVD and released it on airplanes and overseas. It was fun though. It was such a great experience. It was so much fun. I'll never get to do that again. You never, you almost never get to do that in your career unless you're Spielberg or somebody because I basically didn't have a studio. 
I, I had a, the television division looking over me. So I was left to my own devices, for better or worse. And Miguel was amazing. He's always so good. I was so glad I was uh, rewatching The Manchurian Candidate and just so happy when he showed up in that. Jonathan Demi watched Marlowe and made he made the call immediately. He wanted to bring him in. People love working with him. Actors love working with him for great reason. He was so giving. He was so generous. Every part was important to him. He made them feel like they were major contributors to his film. And they were, because as you say, every character was, had a story and was delineated. He didn't throw anything away. It's always tough talking with screenwriters just because, you know, you're talking about did the rewrite for the hard way. And then that actually comes out after I think white sands does. So it's just the, the way that time moves is so strange and the way that things get put into turnaround and, rewritten and all that. So I'm curious as far as when did you actually work on Any Given Sunday? Um, Any Given Sunday, I started working on in 93. I wrote a script. I wrote a, a movie called Playing Hurt for the Donners about the sports doctor, the Matthew Modine character and the James Woods characters. I think it was James, no, James Woods. It was based on the memoir of a of a team doctor of the Oakland Raiders, Robert Heisinger. It was it, a lot of the plots in any given Sunday were in it, but it, it focused on this doctor who gets in conflict with the orthopedic surgeon who he feels is risking players health in order to give Al Davis his team. And we fictionalized it. And I wrote a script again in one of those Hollywood stories It nearly got made. It got, it got greenlit, but the Donners, we had a little bit of a creative falling out, but the Donners, I think, weren't comfortable with what I had done. So they proceeded to put it back into development for about five years. And I had heard they were trying to make it more of a comedy. They brought in a bunch of writers. And then meanwhile, Oliver Stone was developing football movies on his own. He was trying to do a Monday night football movie. At some point, Warner Brothers hired him and gave him any given Sunday. And he basically mashed together a couple of his scripts and any given Sunday and, and my, a couple of his scripts and my script and made any given Sunday. So I don't know that I have a line of dialogue in it, maybe three or four, but it's basically has the tone and the rhythms that I wanted so I really liked watching it. I was stunned. Felt like the movie I wanted to make. So I was happy. When you get hired in Hollywood, you're even if you write an original, the minute they buy the script, it is owned by the studio. The studio becomes the author of the movie, so they can do whatever they want with it. And I've been pretty lucky in that I've more often than not been the last writer on a movie. But a lot of times your movie takes takes a turn like that where You've written something and it's perfectly fine, but the market changes or the business changes or the elements change or someone falls out of it and then it goes back into development and other things can happen. Did I read that you actually worked on a version of Virtuosity while an, a, another writer worked on the same or on a different script? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was kind of sad. That was when I met Denzel, actually. That was more of a 
script doctor. I, I never intended to get credit on it, but I was hired to come in and fix and fixed virtuosity. And generally by guild rules, I think you're only supposed to have one writer on a film at a time, or you need to tell the other writer. So I was doing a rewrite for Denzel and I met with him and I did a bunch of work on his character and on the, the woman and on the bad guy. But meanwhile, the original writer was still on the picture writing his own scenes. And I didn't know it really till after the movie was made. Cause I had even a couple times I went to the set to fix things and I was a little confused as to why I needed to, but I thought maybe the director had, had done something and screwed it up and Denzel got pissed off, but it was, it, you know, it was disappointing. I didn't make a big deal about it. I didn't ask for credit. Well, a lot of times when I do these fixes, like on the firm, if it's someone else, if I feel that the final movie is someone else's words and work, I'm happy to have contributed to it. And I don't need, I don't need to ask for credit. Credit is, as you probably know, is a really slippery slope in Hollywood. A lot of times the, the names that you see on the movie are not the people who are responsible for writing it. They contributed. It's something, but they may not be the, the person who is writing the lines that you're hearing. Yeah, there are so many writers that I've spoken to where it looks like they haven't done work in 20 years, even though they are actively writing, selling, rewriting, ghostwriting, script doctoring, but their names don't get the credit. That's true. Or they'll write, you know, they'll write one film when they're young and then they get in this, in this slot of being the middle guy or, or fixing or, or advancing. There's a lot of, a lot of times when movies are in development for a long time, you just need a writer to come in and advance it and make it fresh again. And studios will do that cynically. I'm trying to remember the last season that I watched of Bosch. Is it still going on? It's gone six seasons. This is the sixth season. And then they're doing COVID permitting. They're doing one more season, a seventh season. It was fun. I came on it just to help out in season three. And then the creator and showrunner left to do Man in the High Castle. So I ran it in season four. And then he came back. He wanted to come back. So we ran it together for seasons five and six. I, I, I had met Mike Connolly and I, I know his books very well. And I, I love LA and LA noir and LA detectives. So, and he's in the room and, and on the set, he's totally involved, which is really helpful. It helped us keep the spirit of his, to really do a good adaptation of his books. But I got a little weary this last year and decided not to, not to participate in season seven. So how do you balance the book writing that you do with the screenwriting that you do? I've transitioned a little bit more into books. Books take a lot more time for me. I'm, I'm much slower. But a lot of the book writing I do is in at night or in bursts when I'm between projects. I didn't get to do too much when I was on Bosch. It was hard to fit in prose writing. It's not hard for me to juggle more than one writing project though, because I've had to do it most of my career. Um, for a long time, I was doing both television and movies and that required me to just shift gears. I'm curious if any of your books have been optioned. No, maybe the next one, the book 50 mice 
was a screenplay that I wanted to direct. I wrote it as a movie first and I want to write and direct. I was partnered up with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And when he passed away, I kind of lost, I, I could never quite, we could never quite get the money or the cast at the same time, but we came close and then he passed away and I kind of decided, yeah, maybe I should do this as a book. And it's much, I think it's much better as a book. But no, I, I mean, initially I, I set out to write books that couldn't be adapted as movies. <laughs> I don't know if it's, if that's possible, but, but I really felt like, well, I'll go backwards because a lot of what I see are books that are written and clearly they're auditions for movies. They're, they're written with a movie in mind. They want to be adapted. And I was thinking, well, maybe there's, maybe I can write something that you don't need to adapt that reads a little bit like a movie or plays like a movie. And I bring some of what I've learned in movies back to prose. So what are you doing these days? What's keeping you busy during lockdown? I have a pilot at Showtime of the Grifters. I figured out a way to do it as a, to make it a series. I figured out a way to make it continue rather than end the way the book does and the movie does. And I also figured out a way to make it contemporary rather than vaguely in the past, the way the Frears movie works. And I, I'm working with my first partner, a writer who I partnered up with at the beginning of our careers to work on our, on the first TV show we did a guy named Scott Shepard, who's a brilliant plotting guy because I wasn't sure that I could figure out the grifts. That's going to be fun. Adapting Thompson. Yeah, it's really fun. And it's really fun to think about what he would write like in this world. The timing of it is, is also sort of impeccable because we live in a world, kind of the golden age of grift between what's going on in Washington and what's going on in the business world. I mean, we live in a, in an age of legal grift where a grifter doesn't have to be doing things in the back alley or, or doing the sting. It's been really interesting and really fun to try to rethink those characters and then, but to do justice to him and to keep the Freudian Oedipal relationship between Roy and his mother, that, that sort of twisted weird thing and to keep her and to keep it from getting too nice <laughs> to keep the edge of it because there's a really cold especially in the Thompson book there's there's a coldness to the story and there's a coldness to her that you have to keep I, th I think Angelica Houston did a good job in the movie of, of doing it but it's kind of devastating how damaged she is and then consequently how damaged Roy is by that. It's been great fun. So I'm working on that. I'm working on another book, figure out some stuff. It's been very, I have to say, it's been very difficult for me writing during COVID because the world seems much more vivid than my imagination. It feels like White Sands was a different time, like, like a completely different universe that I created. And it was so much more innocent. Is it a conspiracy? It's sort of government gone amok, but the things that they were doing are so tame by comparison with what's happened since. Yeah. All those double crosses of different agencies and all that. It's just like, Oh yeah, well that's the way the world works. Well, yeah. Who would even believe if you wrote what was going on now? I mean, I watched contagion a couple of weeks ago just because I hadn't seen it since it came out. And I thought 
How does it hold up? And A, they did their research. It's a blueprint for what actually happened. But the thing that they didn't factor in was Americans, the people, the people who won't take the vaccine, the people who think it's a, a hoax, the people who won't wear masks. I mean, if you'd written that in a movie, I don't think you would have believed it because you'd say no one would do that. It's a it's a, a disease. Everyone's terrified of it. So stuff like that. I wonder I, I do wonder going forward how it's going to affect what we do the next few years. Just the residual, of not only the practical means of how to shoot things, but just psychologically, what's it going to do to the stories we tell? How, how is it going to change them? Mr. Pine, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been wonderful talking with you. It's so much fun to talk about White Sands. I, it's a movie that I, I, too, still love. And I wish more people had seen it at the time, but I'm glad that you're digging it back up and, and found things to appreciate it. My name's Robertson, David Robertson. I'm here on business. I have heard a lot about you, Mr. Robertson. That you believe in our fight. Robertson is involved in illegal arms traffic in our country. Your husband died from a heart attack. Who are you? I used to be somebody else, but I traded him in. Everyone thought I was dead. I let them think so. I didn't care at all before. Now that he's dead, in some strange way, I do. I understand you're a friend of David Robertson. Now I think I'm going to be a waiter in Gibraltar. How about a gun runner? As a matter of fact, I think I am one. ask you one question now. What are you running away from? Right, we are back and we are talking about White Sands. And yes, we alluded to The Passenger earlier and Daniel Pine talked a little bit more about that. So I had never seen The Passenger before looking into it for this episode. Antonioni is kind of a blind spot for me, but I'm glad that I did. I'm not sure if I liked The Passenger, but I'm glad I experienced it and I could really see the similarities between that and White Sands, and I'm glad Pine brought it up because I don't think I ever would have connected the two because, like I said, The Passenger was kind of an unknown entity to me. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it either, actually. Um, I mean, I saw that. So that's that was the third of three films that Antonioni did for MGM, uh, the first one being, I think, Blow Up, the film set in London, yeah, about the fashion photographer which is terrific. And then Zabriskie Point, I have a couple of friends and I have a long running argument about whether that's one of the worst films ever made or not. And then, yes, The Passenger is, uh, is the third of that uh, of those films and I, I think an enormous amount of ink has been spilt about how Antonioni bridled against the sort of Hollywood studio system, et cetera, et cetera. 
I didn't think it was. I didn't think the passenger was 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 without its problems, but I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed so many. I mean, it was confusing as hell in some respects. I mean, so it's 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 Jack Nicholson as a journalist covering a civil war in Chad, is staying in a, in in this tiny remote village, and the only other foreigner in the hotel, this other guy who he's had sort of existential conversations with he comes home from trying to cover the war one day and this guy's dead and so he just decides i'm going to take this guy's identity and it turns out that the guy whose identity he's taken i think it's robertson is that correct is robertson his name yeah he's Locke, and the the dead guy's robinson yeah yeah so, so nicholson is Locke. nicholson and this gets confusing nicholson as Locke takes robinson's identity takes robinson's diary finds out that Robinson's actually an arms dealer and goes about in this sort of very kind of desultory existential ennui of sort of like going going through the motions of being an arms dealer in Europe. And there's lots of Antonioni existential philosophical discussions and sort of times when, when Jack Nicholson as Robertson is just sitting there going, what the hell am I doing? Because even as he starts to take this guy's identity, he sort of can't really figure out what he's doing or where he's going. And, he's, he, you know, there's a terrific line in the film, my favourite line in the film, because, of course, he also hooks up with this young European girl who is played by Romy Schneider, who was in The Last Tango in Paris. And he says, Jack Nicholson, towards the end when he's feeling really existentially, you know, uh, burnt out and he doesn't know what he's doing, he says, what the fuck are you doing here with me? And she says, which means there's so many layers of identity in this film. It's terrific. We were talking about the original Molly through line, and it's very similar to what uh, Jenny Reniker as Rachel is doing because she eventually figures out, oh, this Robertson guy was the last one to see my husband. I need to track him down, not knowing that she's actually tracking down her own husband. And that scene, at a, I think it's at a hotel where she's at the front desk and he's in the phone booth right next door. And I'm just like, oh, shit. And then he just runs out of the hotel and starts the police start giving chase and all this. I was like, okay, yeah, this works. This kind of works. There were some good moments, and especially the very end with the camera outside of the hotel, which is in the middle of nowhere, and the way that the camera's just kind of dollying across and seeing the scenes inside of the hotel. I thought that was great. I also really liked the fact that so so Locke as Robertson is going through the motions of being an arms dealer, meets these two revolutionaries. I think they were in Chad. Some They were fighting some African government. Takes all this money from them in return for arms that he's going to sell them. Goes and has this sort of desultory European life for a month or it's not exactly clear how long on the money that he, they've given him. And they find out, of course, that he hasn't, he's not an arms dealer. He, hasn't, he, he sort of doesn't give them the guns, so they kill him. And at the very end, and I think, you know, we're spoiling this, obviously, at the very end, the wife basically walks into the room where Locke, as Robertson, is lying dead on the bed. And she just says to the, having spent the entire film, as you say, Mike, trying to track down Robertson, and she says, no, I don't know who he is. Right. That, that's it. 
Yeah. And you end in that tableau of the four people standing around the bed and the dead body on the bed. I was just like, yeah, oh, that's yeah. really nice. That was very, very well shot. That film, I think, also really worked well. I'm not hugely across Antonioni's body of work. I've seen quite a lot of his stuff. I'm not a huge fan, but I did like this. And I, one of the other aspects of this film I did like is I think it was a really interesting dissection of the life of a journalist. I mean, at the beginning, and that's, that's what Jack Nicholson as Locke is trying to escape from. I mean, there's this great scene in the beginning where he's basically been sent to cover this civil war in Chad. That's where he meets um, Robertson. And he can't find the war. And this goes on for a good, I think, 15 minutes of him try, cruising around the desert trying to find the war and he can't find it. And there's all these other scenes. There's a terrific scene where he's interviewing this sort of black nationalist. And the black nationalist basically turns the camera literally, literally, not figuratively, on him so that he says, oh, you can do your interview, but let's keep the camera on you while you're doing it. You know, there are some really lovely little moments in terms of what it's like being a, being a journalist, I thought, but that really, um, really captured really well. I've seen the film. I like the film. Uh, I definitely like it better than Blow Up. I think those are probably the only two Antonioni's I've seen. I think I heard about it first reading Elmore Leonard. It might have been Out of Sight, one of the movies that um, Jack and Karen are talking about. It's some character in an Elmore Leonard book talking about uh, Jack Nicholson movies, and they agree that his best was uh, The Passenger. I'd never heard of it before, so I... I sought it out after that, and I really I did enjoy it. I think I saw it in the winter one year, and something about being very cold inside, uh, and and or very cold outside, and and just trying to keep warm indoors and watch this very languidly paced, sun baked movie was. Uh, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I think it deals with the whole notion of identity, I have to say, far of taking someone else's identity far better than White Sands. I mean, in the sense that um, it's much clearer Jackson as, as Locke, the journalist, is really depressed about his life. He's bored with being a journalist. He's bored in his marriage. His wife's having an affair. He decide, He thinks, this is great. I'll just – and I love – I do love the – Less is more way that Antonioni just just depicts his decision just to become Robertson, the uh, the dead arms dealer. Of course, he doesn't know he's an arms dealer when he does that. He just thinks this is my out. I'm just going to become this dead person. And I mean, of course, you can't change who you are, though. I thought that came out really well. I mean, it's kind of an obvious point, but I think it was made really well in this film that Locke, as the journalist, is depressed and in the middle of a deep existential crisis, but. Locke as Robertson, the arms dealer, is also just as in an exist- just as much of an existential funk as he is uh, when he was a journalist. He's just got a bit more cash for a while and gets to hang out in all these really cool sort of European, loose European locations. I really like that, and I really like the fact all these little things he does, like when Locke, when, when Nicholson as Locke, the journalist, basically decides to take. Robertson's identity and he goes to the front desk and he goes to talk to all these Chadians who he's been the Chadian staff who he's been dealing with while he's been staying there and he says oh look that guy Locke died and they just go oh right yeah because of course I don't know whether they think you know, all, all, all Europeans look the same but no one bats an eyelid no one says hang on but aren't you that aren't you Locke 
You know, I mean, uh, they just assume he's Robertson. I, I really like things like that. So that really malleable notion of identity, I just thought it was really well done in this film. Like I said, I've got a blind spot for Antonioni. I think this was my second one that I've seen. I just have this romantic ideal of the local art house showing more Antonioni. Like there's a whole list of like Antonioni, Fellini. They're not all Italian, I swear, but mostly Italian films that I've never seen before, but I would just like to see on the big screen. I imagine seeing the passenger on the big screen is such a different experience than watching it on TV. It also, I think would help being trapped in a theater a little bit more because this is a very languidly paced film. So there were times where I was tempted to start like looking at my phone or getting on my laptop, those things. I kind of had to force myself to stay with this movie. That's what I appreciate about going to the art house. It's like I'm stuck in the, in this space in the dark phones away. I am here for this movie. And I just wish that, some of these other films that I've had on this like imaginary list of like, oh, I'd love to see this on the big screen, or I'm not going to see this until I see this on the big screen. Persona is one of them. It's like, I still haven't seen Persona, but God, I would love to see it, and I'd like to see it on the big screen. I've seen Seven Sign or Seven Sealed several times on the big screen, but please just show me some more fucking Bergman on the big screen. Show me some Antonioni and some Fellini on the big screen, please. In Melbourne, I don't know uh, where you guys are. In Melbourne, we have a Cinematheque, which basically does a full a full year program of um, films and as much as they can. Although they've had to backtrack from this, obviously it was shut down last year because of COVID. But as much as they can, they try and show the original prints. They don't do digital films. They basically, you know, source prints from all over the world of these films and every and they they'll do a season. They'll do like three weeks of um Antonioni or three weeks of Ida Lupino films or three weeks of uh Marlena Dietrich films. And um very well attended with with no you know and, and it is great in that respect. You're forced to basically sit in a cinema and not be distracted or play with anything else or muck around or check your tweet stream or anything like that and pay attention to two films in one night, often by a director you have only vaguely heard of, may not know anything about their work and would never, you know, as a home entertainment option, would never pick out that this, these particular films, but you're there with a whole lot of other people and it's, it's a terrifically rich experience. So I, I concur with you, Mike, about that completely. What was the other Antonioni film you've seen? Blow Up. Okay, so you haven't you haven't had the joy of watching Zabriskie Point. <laughs> Is it a joy? <laughs> well, look, I think it's I think it's a really interesting film. I think it's it's, a, it's sort of an. I mean, look, I think that that context we were having about that group of friends and I about what what's the best sort of film about late radical 60s culture is it uh, Zabriskie Point or is it Medium Cool I don't know if you know Medium Cool but I found uh, Zabriskie Point very laboured and bloated and kind of self-important and it's Antonioni and I'm going to America to make this film about the counterculture and I'll show them how you make a film about the counterculture and I'm really going to stick it to them and all this sort of stuff it's got some great parts in it but uh, I don't think it's it's, 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 it's really that great but and I was kind of expecting that with The Passenger, but I thought The Passenger was a much better crafted, much more interesting 
film with some real things to say about identity as opposed to a sort of the the sort of nihilistic despair of just this couple who are sort of fleeing their lives into the desert and it's all about the counterculture and they make love in the sand and all that. And I think I've pretty much just ensured that this will get a one-star review this uh, episode by going into that rave. But anyway. Yeah, I've wanted to see La Ventura, La Nante, La Clis, Red Desert. Like Those are the ones where I'm just like, I want to see this on the big screen, please. So I don't imagine that uh, Wilhelm uh, down at the Detroit Film Theater is listening, but that would have been nice you know, if we ever get the Detroit Film Theater back online after the pandemic. Uh, isn't Detroit supposed to be full of empty buildings that artists are just taking over? That was in the past. That was before it was all bought up and uh, being turned into parking lots. Okay. Sorry about that. Well, yeah. It's okay. You're stuck then. Is there anything else we want to talk about? Did you guys want to talk more Donaldson, or did you get that out in the first half? <laughs> there was more more of a person, or, or at least some some choices made, you know, rather than just kind of doing random movies as I as I kind of went through and focused on, on what he'd done. Uh, and I was, I was kind of pleased and, and interested to see that. Um, I do think that aside from the, the kind of identity, uh, action thrillers, um, that it white sands also fits in with sleeping dogs and smash palace. Uh, and there's still a couple of his, I haven't seen that, but, um, and I don't remember Cadillac Man well enough to know if it fits here, but uh, as these um, marriages in crisis and, and these guys who can't keep themselves from destroying their marriage, Sleeping Dog starts with uh, with the, the divorce, and then he you know ends up involved with his wife and her uh, new lover in ways that are unenviable. And then Smash Palace is yeah, is this kind of a slow motion car wreck which is a nice metaphor for the, the movie of a marriage falling apart and the guy's very aware of it and, and can't seem to do what he knows needs to be done to stop it even though he does not want the marriage to end and then white sands especially the script is very much this guy in a marriage who maybe wants out and jumps you know jumps out at the this kind of weird opportunity to do so shows up he just bails immediately comes back to it at the end so he's got this interesting uh interesting little collection of films there about about marriages in crisis too i think well yeah i suppose you could say you could expand that at the risk of being cliched it's in some respects it's a sort of masculinity in crisis isn't it i mean that's uh because if you were going to do that i mean probably say that for the last 50 years of cinema but uh, yeah you could um, you could <laughs> you could throw the bounty into that i i was trying to research this so my understanding is that so donaldson got his big break was was lee was david lean going to remake the was going to make the bounty and then he that, died. that's what i saw yeah he died and so donaldson got asked to do it uh i think off the back of the success of smash palace and wow, what a what a film that is! I mean, what a, it got, must have. I'd love to know what it was like going from this sort of tiny little kitchen sink drama that is Smash Palace, with a handful of characters set in a tiny sort of in rural New Zealand about this guy who owns a car wrecking yard and likes racing car drivers and can't get on with his wife, and then you're, you're helming this 
incredibly impressive film, much of which is shot on water. I think didn't someone say if you want to make a film hard for yourself, you know, you, you shoot it on water. Much of it's shot on water. And it really conveys the sort of the crisis that these British, these, these white sailors feel and they go to Tahiti and suddenly while they're collecting breadfruit so that they can, uh, you know, go and plant it back in British colonies because it's cheaper to feed to the slaves. While they're collecting the breadfruit and Captain Bly is overseeing that, all the sailors, including Mel Gibson as Fletcher Christen, are basically shedding their, well, shedding their, their previous identities in the British Navy and, and going native, getting tattooed going out with native girls, hanging around on the beach, you know, all that sort of stuff. I, I, th I thought it was done really well. Yeah, it's one of those movies that was on, uh, it seemed like it was on TV all the time when I was uh, a teenager and uh, and a little bit younger as well. I um, And it was one that if I knew it was on, I would, I would try and sneak bits of it. I, there was no way I could, like, turn the TV on and watch a whole movie. I was not allowed to watch tv um but i would try to to watch parts of that one because there's a lot of nudity in the film that was not cut out by the local you know affiliates in uh in denver when it would come on and and also the the scenes of uh i was i was terrified by that scene of the uh, the guy getting his uh, brains bashed out with a rock those are the only memories of it i have uh until um as an adult, many years later, watching the whole thing. And yeah, it was, it's another one that's just ridiculous cast that, you know, at the time was not, you know, there was a bunch of guys at the beginning of their, of their career. But I mean, holy crap, Daniel Day Lewis and, and um, Liam Neeson and, and Gibson. of course Mel Gibson. And yeah, I mean, just like so many people in that movie. And it's a gorgeous film, and and the Vangelis score is, is really nice. I, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. It features that great pulp trope of white men going mad in the tropics, which I'm always a, a sucker for. I yeah. just love that. I think I think that that they dealt with that very well. Uh, these white guys who are going mad with what their lives were like, but what they could have, and they can't really have it because. You know they they've got to snap back and be back in the British British Navy and sail off with the breadfruit under the under the command of this despotic Captain Bly and of course it, it basically drives what drives drives Fletcher Christian mad. I oh when you mentioned Cadillac Man just because I did see that one theatrically. <laughs> I heard that. I heard that. <laughs> and it's an in my opinion it's an awful film uh, though I did see it when I was 18 years old I don't know if it gets any better with age but you were talking about masculinity in crisis and that's basically the subtitle of the movie should be masculinity in crisis because not only is Tim Robbins having a crisis but also Robin Williams is having a crisis but to me the two of them together in this movie are kind of oil and water it, it never gels for what it's supposed to be I just it was a painful movie to watch, if memory serves. Yeah, I, I don't remember it well enough. I was going to watch it for this episode. I'm glad I didn't. Yeah. Well, you might watch it and love it. Who knows? I mean, you guys love No Way Out, so. Oh, well, look, I, it, <laughs> I, I, if I watch it again, I think I will watch it with Tin Men, which I know that I liked, but it's been a long time since I've seen it, and um, and maybe Used Cars. Uh, oh, I was, so um, good. Always uh, got a soft spot for for Kurt Russell in the '80s. So, oh, fucking used cars is so good. Oh man, I love that movie. 
If I could get fucking Bob Gale to return my phone calls, we'd be doing an episode on that. Well, he's probably listening, Bob. Come on. Yeah, I couldn't get Roger for this, even though it was hilarious. I sent his uh, his representative a request, and she's like, what else is he doing? Sure, of course we'll do it. I'll forward on your information. And then, yeah, I never heard anything. <laughs> ah. It's COVID time. What else are you going to do? Obviously, not everybody's working in 2020, 2021. Ah, sure, so, sure. But, uh, yeah, if he's, if he's making films in New Zealand, then he's all set. Those guys have been set for a while, so... We just look on enviously from the rest of the world. The one Donaldson film I wanted to see for this episode, not that it really had much to do with it, but I just wanted to rewatch it, was The Getaway, which you talked about earlier. Yeah. Which I just, I just remember being so nasty and sleazy, and I just remember loving it. Yeah, I watched that uh, a couple months, couple months ago, and I was impressed. I mean, of course. It's not Sam Peckinpah's uh, The Getaway, and and Sam Peckinpah's The Getaway is not Jim Thompson's The Getaway, but every iteration of The Getaway I like, and mm-hmm. and Donaldson's has got you know uh, for as glossy a project with a list stars, and um, you know clearly hoping to turn this into like a big hit. I was impressed watching it again recently. How how nasty it stayed. It's hard to imagine Brangelina deciding to make that movie as a couple or someone like that, you know, uh, with Brad like, Pitt, right. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, you know, like by the sea was, was a pretty interesting uh, project. I think that they did. And that was a pretty sour, <laughs> sour uh, film uh, appropriately. So uh, as their, you know, marriage is dissolving, but um, just the idea that, that, McQueen and and uh, uh, McGraw met on the movie, fell in love, and then you know that was a doomed relationship in the end. And then that Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger would cast themselves as McQueen and McGraw when they're at the height of their fame and and uh, you know their Hollywood A list couple, uh, and then you know fall apart shortly afterward. Uh, it's hard to imagine another big A list couple doing this film and keeping it as nasty as they were able to keep it then it's still pretty pretty sleazy and dark and you know it's a hard r i like it and i appreciate that all right guys let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show welcome to our world headquarters of the bureau of sexological investigation my name is dr harrison t rogers Now that we have reached the last holdout of human ignorance, the nature of man's sexuality in America today, I'd like to invite you inside these doors. Our outpatient clinic is perhaps one of the busiest in the country. We treat all kinds of patients. They're welcome here. If you have a sexual problem, we're ready to treat you. What is the ideal penis length? Just about four or five inches, just about like that. Oh, about nine, nine and a half. Down here. Right about? Below the knee. The male organ has an average of six inches in length. The female orifice has eight inches of possibility, which means that if you translate this to world population. There are some millions of miles of unused orifice. At this point, 
this time, I think we should talk about contraceptives. The ingenuity of modern man has given the fertile woman a variety of devices, starting, of course, with the diaphragm. Look at the names for the sexual anatomy. They all sound like foreign imported cars. The Peugeot, the Volvo. What I'm saying to you, America, is it doesn't matter how large a breast of a woman's is, as long as they're huge. Do you think that the armed services discriminate against transsexuals? Thank God they do, otherwise I'd be fighting in Vietnam. This might sound strange, but um, I really sometimes feel that I'm a reincarnation of Fatty Arbuckle. Hello there, and welcome to the International Sex Games. This is Raven Arm Smith speaking to you live from the Sex Bowl in Houston, Texas. How do you feel about the growing sexual revolution in America? That kind of activity is not going to be tolerated in this cabinet. This is going to be a hair-raising finish. That's right. We'll be back next week with Is There Sex After Death? A question we've all wanted to know the answer to. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jedediah and Andrew. So, Jedediah, please don't disappoint me when I ask you what you've been up to. I've been watching a lot of movies, Mike. All right. Got anything to sell or plug? I hear that you had a dream and sorted out all your issues for uh, your next novel. Yeah, I, well, the truth is, in the last two weeks, I've dreamt six novels. So, Whoa. Um, yeah. Wow. I haven't had any dreams a- Ask me how many I'm writing. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, Andrew, what is the latest with you, sir? Just living the life of Riley down here in Australia, uh, Melbourne. Um, no, look, life goes on. I'm trying to find about 55,000 wor- words into a novel. This one has just taken me so long to try and get done. and. Various other bits and pieces of writing. We're currently moving into the editing and proofing and layout stage for the next book I co-edited for PM Press, uh, Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction from 1950 to 1985. And as far as I know, none of that is a dream. That's all happening. This is no dream. This is really happening. I am really looking forward to that one. Please let me know when I can pre-order that. Oh, you all will find out about that up the up the yin yang, mate. That it'll be <laughs> it'll be pushed. Yes, no, no. I'm looking forward to it too. I'm looking forward to it too. Yeah, I think I saw it on your timeline today. Uh, somebody who took that dog in the burning house cartoon and changed uh, this is fine too. So anyway, I have a new book coming out. I'm <laughs> so there. Life is the world is burning, but hey, I'm really trying to swap through that fifty five that that mark of my fifty five thousand word mark of the novel. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.